Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us this morning. It was actually a little cool this morning, but I think it's going to warm up nicely today, as Dan was saying. So it's great to have you here with us uh, today. You know, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're just finished up the, the college graduation season, and now we're starting to move into the high school graduation season. That season is definitely upon us and it's coming here soon. And one of the cool things about graduation is it's an opportunity to, you know, read out a name or receive a diploma or just be honored for your hard work, for your effort, for your accomplishment as you walk across that stage, as you receive gifts, as you receive um, honor in some way. And we'll be recognizing all of our graduates here in a couple of weeks. But um, there's one special form of honor that happens at graduation. And these individuals are honored because of their hard work and their efforts um, scholastically. And so if you, uh, in your graduation uh, event, if you get to wear one of these colored things, um, which I never got to wear one, so I'm actually going to wear one the whole service today, just since I never really got to wear one. But if you got to wear one of these things, you know what I'm talking about. You know, These are the individuals that have excelled academically. And so in order to wear one of these, you have to have a 3.5 to 3.7 grade point average to graduate cum laude. And if you get a little bit better, magna cum laude, 3.7 and 3.9. And then summa cum laude is 4.0. So when I was thinking about this, I... I said to my daughter, do you have any of these? She's like, yeah, I got a couple of them in my closet, Dad. I was like, well, I guess I know where your brains didn't come from, you know. Um, but if you graduated Kuma Magna or Summa Cum Laude at, at high school, graduate school, college, any level, put your hand up. Let me see your hands. How many of you did? Okay, look around the room. There's the really smart ones all around the room here, you know. So, um, but it's a form of honor, right? It's, it's honor and then... And then uh, you know, all the way up to the highest honor. And the point of that is that we want to recognize and add value to the individuals that have accomplished those things. And, and honor is a really important thing. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this whole idea of honor. We all know it's important. I don't think we give a lot of credence to how important it is in our lives. It's not uncommon for me to have conversations with individuals and they'll be talking about something. I'll be like, wow, that's really cool. And they'll be, well, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not, it's no big. I said, well, didn't you get honored for that or recognized? No, it's really, it, and it's fine. It's fine. I'm like, okay, it's not fine. If you're telling me it's fine, it's, it means it's not fine because you probably deserved honor and you did not receive honor in that moment of time. Uh, a show that really illustrates this is the show Undercover Boss. And, and uh, I don't know how many of you have watched the TV show Undercover Boss and gotten a little misty-eyed. Let me see your hands. How many of you have that? Okay, you're a little more honest than second service than first service. But, uh, you know, why is that? Well, because we see someone who's worked hard, and, and the big boss says, you worked really hard, and I'm really proud of you, and thank you for all your dedication and sacrifice. And that's enough just to get... A pat on the back, it says, you worked hard. But then when they add some financial remuneration on top of the hard work, as you watch the stories unroll at the very end, you see the trajectory of their lives literally change direction because they were honored. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing that really can alter our lives. And so this morning, as we continue our series entitled Blueprints, um, we're going to be looking at this subject of honor. If you have a Bible with you this morning, if you would turn to 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of them in, our, in your seat, um, and the one in your seat is on page 962, that's where you want to turn to, the ones in the seat backs and the racks in front of you, or you can follow along your phone or tablet. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we encourage you to take the one there in the seat with you, mark this page somehow, and uh, take that along with you and reference that and go back and read through it this week. 
So the book of 1 Timothy, what's 1 Timothy about? Well, 1 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a younger guy named Timothy, who was kind of his protege, his apprentice, if you will. And Paul had been in prison, and he sent some of his protégés back to some of these churches that he established. And so one of the places he had set up a church was the city of Ephesus. He actually spent three years there helping get this church established. So he sent Timothy back to Ephesus to check on the church. As he sent him back to check on the church, he heard a few things about the church, and then he proceeded to write a letter because he wanted them to understand how the church was supposed to function. And so it was important for him to send this communication to them. So in chapter 1, he says the foundation of any church should be their love for one another, and it should be all about the gospel, the message and the hope of Jesus Christ and God's love for the world that gets shared. That's what every church should be about. And then in chapter 2, he talked about women and the valuable role that they have and and the place for their voices to be heard and, and the challenge sometimes for them to express that and their perspectives to be understood and how at times that is difficult. Chapter 3, he talked about the leadership, elders, and we call them ministry leaders here. In those days, it was called deacons. And we talk about those individuals and the, their character. It needs to be above reproach, not only inside the faith community, but outside the faith community as well. And then last week, chapter 4, we talked about to the young adults in our room. And, and I said, be careful who you listen to, because the people you listen to are going to shape the direction of your life. And my challenge to them was not to be someone to live in such a way that they're not looked down on because of their age, but they're looked up to because of their age. And if you haven't been able to be here with us, you can go to our website and check out any message that you might have missed in this series. So in chapter 5, we want to talk about the subject of honor. honor. And the idea of honor is something that, um, that God says, I placed inside of you. I placed inside of you. David in the Psalms said this, he said, you've made them, talking about us, people, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've been crowned with glory and honor. You see, honor is something that we are designed to receive and we're designed to offer. That's the way God has made us. We're designed to receive that and we're designed to offer. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, he says, honor everybody, honor one another. He's talking about People in the church community says, honor them above yourself. Above yourself. It's not about drawing attention to yourself. It's not about getting focused on you. It's about honoring everybody. And so he says that's kind of the baseline level of honor. You just do it for everybody. That's the baseline. But then in the New Testament, there's also instructions about a select group of people. And so, excuse me, New Testament and Old Testament. One of those comes out of the Ten Commandments. There's a Ten Commandments that talks about honor. Anybody remember what that commandment says? It says, honor who? Father and mother, right? Honor your father and mother. So it's talking about the family relationships. In Proverbs 31, 31, um, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says, honor her for all that her hands have done. Talking about uh, wives and moms, and we did that last week in Mother's Day. It says, honor them for everything that they've done. And then in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, it says that husbands are to love their wives and wives are to respect. That's the idea of honor. Your husbands, and then in First Peter chapter three, it says, "Husbands, treat your wives with respect or honor." So it's supposed to go both ways. So they're supposed to honor each other. So Paul says, in those most important relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, mother, uh, mother, children, there should be honor. There should be honor. And so the baseline is everybody. And then he says, the next level is the, the closest relationships in your world. 
And then he says in 1 Timothy 5, he points to a couple of specific um, relationships that he wants us to look at that we're going to pay attention to this morning. And he reminds us of this family dynamic, the family dynamic. Look there if, you have in your, if you're in your Bibles in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Basically says, what I want you to do is I want you to relate to one another in the context of the church like you do in a family. Now for some of you, that kind of makes you wince a little bit. Because when you think about family, it doesn't come with a lot of warm and fuzzies, you know. It's like we do it because we have to tolerate it at holidays. That's the only reason we're with family. But it's not really a significant, meaningful thing. But, but Paul says you need, to re, you need to relate to one another in this way, but in a different way. Because you're part of God's family now. This is not your family of origin. This is not your, you know, the, the people that brought you into this world. But this is a family called God's family. And God's family have the same dynamic of relationship, but it should be drastically different if God is at the center of your lives. And he says there, first of all, he says, don't treat the old guys harshly, but, but treat them like your dad. That's how you should treat the older men in that way. He says, treat younger men as brothers. And all I know what younger men do with their brothers is they just pound on one another. That's all I know that, that brothers do with one another. So I guess that's what the guys are supposed to do with each other in some way. Um, it then says, older women as mothers. So the older women, and we'll let them decide who they are and when they're there. Um, we won't tell them that. Um, but he said, treat them like mom. He said, treat them like mom. Treat them with care and dignity and honor. And he said, and the younger women as sisters with absolute purity. He said, absolute purity. He really draws a strong line in the sand. He then shifts the focus. We're going to spend some of our time this morning on a group of individuals called widows. Individuals who have lost their husbands. And in that culture in that day, when a woman lost her husband, she was in a very dangerous situation. You say, what do you mean dangerous? Well, a, a number of things happen when a woman would lose her husband to, uh, maybe he got killed in battle or because of disease or something would happen, an accident. Um, the, one of the things that she would put at risk would be her sense of identity, her sense of worth and value, because often that was closely tied to her role as a wife and a spouse. Another thing that she would lose is she would lose um, potentially the source of income because especially if she was at home raising children, she would not be working and so there would be, no, there would be a complete loss of income. And with that loss of income could come a loss of home and loss of other things. There's a story in the Bible in the Old Testament about a woman by the name of Ruth who had this exact same thing happen to her. She lost her husband through sickness and illness and she was destitute. She didn't have anything. Um, but God has a very special heart for people who find themselves in these situations. Because God says this, God says justice and love should always be extended towards women who are in these vulnerable places. God is described as the father to the fatherless and the defender of orphans. God said this in Exodus 22. He says, don't take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. And he says, you're going to pay is what will happen if you take advantage of a woman in a situation like this. Farmers were instructed to leave extra on the edges of their fields and leave some of the, the harvest in the, in the trees in the orchard so that women who are in these situations would be able to collect some food um, so that they would be able to survive. The nation of Israel was judged by God for exploiting and taking advantage and oppressing widows instead of defending them and providing for them. 
You may remember the story where Jesus raised up the dead son of a, wi- of a widow um, because that was all she had. Jesus also honored a widow's small financial gift above all the other gifts of greater monetary value because of the sacrifice that she was extending. And James says this, pure religion is care for orphans and widows in distress. So this is something that all throughout the Bible, all the way from the very beginning, all the way back to the law in the book of Exodus, God says, take care of widows, take care of widows, take care of them. Don't take advantage of women who find themselves in this situation. And so that's what Paul's going to talk about in this section. And just to frame it for our conversation today, the, when we think of widow, the first and obvious thought is someone who's lost their spouse due to death. But there's other circumstances that this can affect. It can also affect a woman who's separated, a woman who's divorced, a woman who's um, single. It can affect women in all those different situations. And he describes women in three, uh, widows in three different groups. The first is a, a widow who's up in age and without financial support. So this means that she's kind of beyond the place where she feels like she can re-enter another relationship, but she has financial needs. The second group is widows who are up in age, but they have a family to support her. See, there was a law in that culture that um, when you were to marry, the, the man who was going to marry a woman, he had to give the, um, the woman's family this thing called a dowry. Now, if you can imagine those days, you got a dowry for every daughter you had. Um, that's what life was like in those days. Now, in these days, you pay for a wedding for every daughter you have. Really bad to live in this day if you have a lot of daughters, right, Frank? You know, it's very expensive, you know. So, um, but that's what it was in those days. So, so what, what happened to a widow is if she would lose her husband, then she would go back to her in-laws, and she was legally um, allowed to request that dowry back. But what if the dowry got spent? Or what if the dowry got lost in a financial crisis? Or if, they, uh, if a famine came through? What if the dowry was lost? If the dowry was lost, there's no way for, her to, for them to help her. So in this situation, sometimes she can get help. Sometimes she couldn't. She never knew. She never knew. And the last group of individuals described in this situation is widows young enough to work and re-enter a relationship. So Paul's going to talk about women who are in each of these situations. So let's dive in there. If you're there in chapter 5, beginning in verse 4, look what he has to say. Actually, we'll start with verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. These are the ones that need the help. Um, he says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, those, these, should first, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. This is kind of that middle category where he's saying, if you have a family member in need, you are responsible and obligated to take care of them. And I love the language that Paul uses here. He says, this is how you're putting your religion into practice. Don't tell me you know a lot of this. Don't tell me you show up every Sunday. You take care of people in your family who have needs. And that's when I know your faith is really real. He also says it's a way for you to care for them. That's pretty obvious. Look at this. And you repay them back. You repay them back. Pretty fascinating statement that Paul makes. He says, God is pleased with you when you do this. Um, And I want to just take a moment and speak into this because I've heard individuals, some individuals enter these kinds of relationships um, when they have to care for an elderly and aging parent or, or a mother-in-law or father-in-law or extended family member, and, and, and some are able to enter that, and others it's really a struggle. And I've heard some people say, I just can't go and see them. They don't know who I am, 
anyways. Anyways. And I want to challenge that way of thinking today. Because part of this journey, when we find ourselves in this situation, is we are choosing to step into and love someone who can't very likely love us back in any way. If you have a family member dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's or things, diseases like this, um, or even a very debilitating disease, they can't offer anything back to you. But Paul says when you serve them and you care for them, you're doing exactly what they did for you. Because there was a time when you were an infant and they might have taken care of you and you couldn't offer anything back. As a matter of fact, all you did is demand more. And there was likely a time when you were maybe a a middle schooler or a teenager and they came by to see you, came by to spend time with them and, and you didn't even acknowledge their presence and you took off with your friends. I've been there and done that. And um, Paul says, when you have someone in this situation, it's a chance for you to pay them back and to live out your faith. I remember when my grandfather, who was a hugely influential part of my life, my dad's father, um, battling dementia, um, and I would go down and just sit with him just to give my grandmother a break. She'd be like, oh, I don't have to answer the same question all day long. Thank you for answering it for a few hours. Um, you know, so I'd just go down there and be there with him. And then after he broke his hip and had to be sedated because he couldn't remember not to get up, and he would keep getting up and then trying to fall again and have to be sedated, and he's laying in a you know, reclining chair there, and, and uh, he's in a, he was a civil engineer, and his mind always ran like that, and he'd be staring up there, how did they get those ceiling tiles so square like that? You know, that's all I could think about. You know. I would just sit by him, um, talk to him, be there with him. It's really hard for me because I had some family members that say, I can't, I can't go there, I can't be there. And I don't understand why. Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it gut-wrenching? No question. Is it torturous at times? Sure. Sure. But I think when we make these choices to love people who have loved us, that's when our faith is real. That's when our faith is real. Love isn't love unless it's put to the test. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's an opportunity for you to put to the test. And I've had people say to me, well, well, I don't want to remember them like that. And you know, the brain is a powerful thing. The brain is a powerful thing. Because what happens when they pass is you don't have that memory fixed in your head. You have all the positive things. That's the way the brain works. You have to work really hard to remember those other memories. That's the way the brain works. And so be careful about using statements like that as an excuse about a responsibility that if you are a person of faith, that Paul says this is the way you're supposed to live your faith out. And he's saying it to the church, but he also says if you have people in your family, and nearly all of us have or will, so we are, none of us are excused from this. None of us are. I don't think Paul's trying to put a burden of guilt on you that you, you have to take care of them in your own home. That's not, I don't think, what Paul's suggesting. He said you have to care for them and you have to figure out what that looks like. Don't excuse yourself away from that responsibility. He then goes on to say, A widow is really in need and left alone, puts her hope in God and continues day and night to pray for her and to ask God for help. And really what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about this is what a widow has to do. She has nowhere else to turn. Nowhere else to turn to get help. So she just simply asked God for the help that she needs. He says, the widow lives, her pleasure is dead even when she lives. Give the people these instructions 
so that no one may be open to blame. He says there's some widows that don't trust in God. They just live for themselves. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those that need the help sincerely. And then he closes this section by again talking about the failure to do that in verse 8. Um, oh, excuse me, let me go ahead here. There we go, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, does he use some strong language? No beating around the bush for Paul. He says, if you don't take care of your own, he said, there's really nothing worse than that. Nothing as hard as that? Absolutely, 100%. Nothing worse than ignoring those that have those needs. And then he talks about those who have the needs. Um, in verse 9, he says, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 16. Now, this is kind of an odd statement because in that culture, life expectancy for a woman was around 40 years old. So you had to be really, really, really old to get on the list in this case. But he then goes on to say, what should be true of this person? He said they should be faithful to their husband. And then he goes on in the next verse, in verse 10, is well known for her good deeds, is bringing up her children, showing hospitality, um, washing the feet of the Lord's people, and then helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Basically, Paul's saying, if there's a woman who's lost her spouse, she's um, above an age where work is possible for her, and she's lived and cared for people, take care of her. Take care of her. That's what Paul was admonishing the church to do. And what we know is his writings were often surrounding a problem, right? So likely there were people that had these kinds of needs that weren't being taken care of. And that's what Paul says to them. Then he jumps to that third group, the group that could go back to work, and look what he says to them in verse um, 11. He says, as for the younger widows, don't put them on this list, for when their essential desires overcome their dedication um, to Christ... Um, they, oops, went ahead there. They want to marry, thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle, going about from house to house. And not only do they become idle, idlers, but also busybodies who walk, who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So what is he saying? He's talking about women who are younger, and he's saying to them, he said, they've broken their first pledge. What's he talking about? We don't really know what he's referring to. We can only speculate. The, the thinking is that likely what's happened is this is a woman whose husband has passed away, and she's at a fairly young age. And so the church has said, we'll take care of you. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Um, and she said, okay, if the church is going to take care of me, I'm just going to devote myself to serving God and, and serving the church. That's what seems to have happened in this case. But along the way, she met a guy and decided, oh, I know I made that promise, but this is a little more inviting, so I think I'm going to pursue this relationship. That's likely what took place in this story. The other thing that was happening is because these younger women were not working and the church was taking care of them, they picked up information, they spread this information, they basically became the town gossips, is what happened in that community. And Paul said, that is a bad, bad, bad thing. So you know what? Why don't you just get married and have kids and take care of things? Why don't you do that? And so that's literally what Paul advises them to do. Now again, remember, Paul's writing to a specific situation, to a specific problem that happened in that community. 
But he's basically saying, if you can get, if those things happen to you, pursue them. If not, the church should take care of them. And then he says, if any woman is a believer as widows, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help those widows who are really in need. So what is Paul saying? He says, honor those who have lost a spouse and assist them financially. He says, if this happens to be a family member, then you have an obligation to provide care for them. And if it happens to you and you're young enough to remarry, consider doing so. And so that's Paul's instructions in that situation. And to think about how does this affect someone and what does this look like, I've asked someone who's a part of our church, uh, Gina Horning, if she would come and join me on stage. So Gina's going to come and And as Gina comes, some of you know Gina, some of you don't, but as she comes and joins me, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, her story. Uh, Gina and her husband Jim had attended here at our church for a number of years. I don't quite remember exactly how many years, probably six, seven, eight years, something like that. And um, uh, Jim was an active part of our church. Jim was actually one of my running partners. We ran together uh, regularly for several years, uh, ran a couple of long-distance races together, and um, one morning, Jim, at the age of 42, one afternoon, I should say, sat down on the edge of his bed and died instantly. And so suddenly Gina was put into this category, if you will, not something any woman desires to ever imagine she would find herself in that situation, but with two teenage kids um, without her husband. And so I've asked Gina to share uh, with you a little bit about her journey, um, because I think it's easy to read about this on a page. It's different when you hear it. Uh, from someone's story. So, Gina, thank you very much for being willing to share with us this morning. I greatly appreciate um, your uh, willingness to do that. So, to get us started, can you talk with us about those first couple of days as really the shock of this is just probably overwhelming and I imagine paralyzing is is a nice way to put it. Um, What was it that you and your family needed in those first couple of days? Well, to give a one-word answer, I would say presence, the presence of other people to be there with us, um, just willing to sit with us, willing to come into our home. Jim passed away on a Friday evening, and I remember our house was full of people. To be honest, some of our neighbors, until they found out what had happened, thought we were having a party because there were cars lined up and down our street. Mm. Um, And throughout that weekend, I remember that there were people there, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. There were kids there, you know, whole families there. There were people who were willing to have conversations with my daughter or not have conversations with my son because he didn't want to talk. Mm. You know, just having people um, willing to sit there with us. And a lot of times people wonder, what do you say? I don't know what to say. And you avoid those situations. It really doesn't matter what you say, to be perfectly honest. I forget most of what was said to me during those first few days. And don't worry about saying the wrong thing. As I shared in first service, some people will say the wrong thing. And later when we have our sense of humor back, we joke about some of those things, (laughs) some of those words that people said. Just to give you an example, Jim's boss stopped by and, and he said, life goes on. And we all stood there in stunned silence because what do you say to that? <laughs> <laughs> so really that, uh, that first couple of days, you just, need some, you just need people that are there with you. Just the physical presence of people Absolutely. provides what you need in that time of grief mm-hmm. and loss. So, um, so after that time period, um, after the funeral and life has to now go on and you have to figure out now how do you navigate life, what are the things that are critically needed and what are the challenges you faced in that first year? In that first year, a lot of times life feels like you're just getting through. You're just getting through the day. You're just getting through Christmas or a birthday or whatever. It feels like 
what do I have to do, you know, what can't be let go. So I would say what's important is for people to be willing to be there for us, um, whether it's inviting us over for a holiday dinner, inviting us to a family picnic, to go to the movies, to do ball games. Because to be honest, I'm not feeling like very much fun. I'm not able to provide fun things for my kids right now. Mm-hmm. So to have someone else invite and include us, that, would, that was huge. Yeah, so it's moving from the presence to actually being invited and having people to allow you to just participate in life and just go through life with you. So then after you make it through that kind of that, that dreaded first year of all those things, and, you know, it's often a case where people are probably checking in with you a little bit more, but, but what are the challenges that are faced after that, the next couple years after that? I would say in some ways year two was harder than year one because no longer am I just getting through. It's now the reality. This is what my life looks like. I am a single mom. I have two teenagers, and I can't do everything on my own. So it's still important for people to include us. I don't necessarily only want to be with other widows or other moms. Mm-hmm. I, I miss those family, even couple things. So, you know, to have our friends still invite us to the family picnic, to be able to see my son have um, intelligent conversation about sports with someone else, because that's something <laughs> I can't provide. Um, you know, just even for them to be able to observe husbands and wives because they Mm. were at very impressionable age and so they no longer see that directly in their home so that was important to me that they continue to be around families yeah that's pretty significant just to hear that you know because i think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that that second year is harder as now you're trying to figure out what's this new normal look like for all of you and even just hearing you describe the things that your kids needed to experience that as much as you love them deeply, there's going to be some limitations, and, and for them to see and experience that with others is really important. Um, as you think about this subject, uh, Gina, and as you think about our church and caring for women who are walking through these difficult seasons in life, any words that you want to share with our church about that? I would say that our church has been phenomenal in reaching out to our family and to others in this situation. You know, being willing to include us and invite us, um, not treating, you know, we are well aware of our loss and not, not feeling like you need to point that out or treat us differently, but treating us like we still are who we were before. We might be changed by this loss, but we still are individuals. And including us, you know, whether it's, like I said previously, to a picnic or something fun to do, also asking us to help out with something, making mm-hmm. us feel like we still are a valued part of the church mm-hmm. and, and have gifts to offer. That was really important to me as well, um, that I was still able to contribute to ministry in some way. What have you observed as you've talked with others in this same situation? What have you heard from them? I would them? say this is not the experience for most people. Um, because of my story, I, I do have interactions with widows. I do find that you know they share stories that I hadn't heard previously to becoming a widow, and maybe that makes me more sensitive to their story as well. But, you know, for some of them, they felt like relationships have moved away. Friends have dropped them because they were uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been expressed some envy or jealousy of the love and support that I've received. They're happy that I had that, but that Mm -hmm. was not their experience. Mm -hmm. Well, Gina, thank you so much for sharing that with us this morning. And for those of you that don't know the rest of the story that uh, recently um, God has brought uh, Cliff into uh, Gina's life, and I had the opportunity and privilege to officiate at their wedding just recently. And so God continues to be at work in Gina's life, and so I'm grateful for her sharing that. Would you thank her for sharing her story? So thank you, Gina. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it.
you know, I've had the privilege to walk real closely with Gina through this journey and uh, just really remarkable to see her willingness to allow God to be at work in her life and, uh, and even just to hear um, often stories of how as God prompted you, you moved into her life or, or one of her kids and touched them and cared for them. And that's really what God calls the church to be about. Um, for people outside the church to be jealous of the way people inside the church are being loved is pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. But Paul's not done. He's got another group that he wants to talk about honor. And so let's take a look at that. In verse 17, look what he has to say. Um, He says this, He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, Paul's talking to what for us would be like one of our small groups. In those days, churches were not buildings like this with hundreds of people coming to them. In that culture, churches were a home, someone that had a little bit bigger home, and a group of families that had all chosen to follow Jesus, and they got together in this home. That's what church was like for them in that culture. And so Paul's writing and he's saying the individuals that are responsible for leading, and he uses the word well here, the individuals that lead this church well are worthy of double honor. And you say, what does it mean to lead a church well? Well, as I thought about this, I thought maybe the best way to think about it is what would not leading well look like? And as I thought about that, I thought, well, it'd be individuals that were leading because of what it would benefit them, because people that, someone that wanted a position of privilege or responsibility, people that like to get patted on the back and stroked because of the way they take care of people, um, people that did not handle their finances responsibly, people that did not care for the needs of people well, people that, um, uh, that did not do the work that was required for ministry. These are individuals that would not serve it well. But Paul says the leadership in your faith community that does it well, he said they should be worthy of double honor. Now, what does the double honor mean? Well, likely the individuals that he's talking about are working full-time jobs, and so he's probably not referring to remuneration or finances. Although I'd be happy and would love to tell you that pastors should be paid twice as much as everybody else, but I can't justifiably tell you that from the text this morning, unfortunately. Now, we do like to get paid, but that's, that's another story. Um, but... Basically, I think what Paul's saying is he's saying because of, because of some of the uniqueness of this role, there should be additional honor placed on them. Because of the uniqueness of this role. And he says, especially those work who's preaching and teaching. That's really just communicating. Those that communicate well um, the truth of God's word. He goes on to describe this in the next verse, uh, verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, I don't know if these comparing pastors to oxes, you know, or that we're supposed to be like uh, laboring methodically, you know, what it is that he's supposed to, we're supposed to be doing. But in the end, he says a worker deserves his wages. So basically, make sure that they're taken care of, I think is what the point is that Paul's making. He then goes on to describe a problem. He says, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. That was the legal standard in that day. One person couldn't bring an accusation and go to court. Two or three people had to bring an accusation. He says, but those elders who are sinning, and are, you are to reprove them before everyone so that the others may take warning. He said, I charge in the sight of God and Jesus 
the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Now remember in the very beginning when he talked about the church is like a family? Where does partiality and favoritism show up the most? In our what? Families, right? I won't ask for a raise of hands of how many of you have been the recipient or, or the other end of the receiving end of favoritism or partiality in your family. And so there's a likelihood that in this small little faith community where there might have been extended family, that there was a leader in that extended family, maybe some leaders that were doing a good job, other leaders that were doing a poor job, taking advantage of people, and because it's an uncle, a cousin, a brother, or someone, they're like, oh, we're just going to let that one go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He said, that should not be the way we relate to one another. He goes on um, to describe, as he's talking about these accusations and reproving them, goes on in verse 22. Let me get down to verse 22. There we go. Um, Don't be hasty in laying on their hands or you're sharing their sins. Paul's saying you've got to be really careful who you put in those positions of leadership. It's very, very important to pay attention to that. And then he goes on in the last couple verses down in verse 24 to say, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not um, cannot remain hidden. I think what Paul's saying here is he's saying there are some things that people do wrong, even in leadership, that are hidden, and so you deal with them in private. Some things in public, you deal with them in public. And Paul's saying, he's saying, if you have leaders that serve well, honor them. Honor them. If you have leaders that don't serve well, deal with them. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. And to think about this a little bit, I thought I needed to have someone who could talk to our church who's lived on both sides of the fences. Because for me to talk about that's a little difficult because I'm talking about the role that I'm currently in. But what's it like to understand it from the seats that you are in about the role of a pastor? And so I'm going to ask Mike Pierce if he would come on on stage and just join me for a couple minutes. And for those of you that know Mike, um, Mike and Carrie served here with us at CCC for eight years. And then um, God redirected them out to the... to the wilderness of Western Illinois, and they spent a few years in the wilderness of Western Illinois and uh, serving faithfully out there in two other ministries, and then God brought them back here, and Mike is currently working as a uh, Salesforce uh, IT consultant. So Mike has this unique capacity to look at both sides of the fence, and so I've asked Mike to talk a little bit about why do you think Paul wrote about this idea of double honor? Can you just maybe give your thoughts on where, what might be behind that? Yeah, I think the double honor comes from the, from the fact that a pastor's role is different than perhaps any other vocation in this sense. Um, there is a, a scripture in Hebrews 13 that says, essentially, respond to your leaders because they have to give an account for your soul. And that is a scripture that every pastor knows but also feels deeply that I know. Um, there's also a scripture in Acts that says that, you know, watch out for the flock for whom Christ died. Okay, so we're watching out for people for whom the ultimate price has been paid. And there's also scripture in, Hebrew, in, in Peter that says, um, you know, that we've been entrusted with the most precious thing, the people that God died for, that Christ died for. And so as I think about that, the word that came to my mind was actually a word that Bob Hess used of our elders, and that is the word weight. 
you know, as a Salesforce consultant, as an IT consultant, um, I put a lot of hours in. I don't quite put as many hours in as I did as a, a pastor, but I know you guys, I mean, our people work hard. There's a lot of hours. There's also pressure in my job as a Salesforce consultant, and there's pressure in whatever you guys do. So the pressure is not something that's unique to being a pastor, but I think the weight is. You know, as an IT consultant, um, if a project goes badly, the company I'm working for, the client, may lose some money. My company may lose some money. Maybe I'll get fired. Um, if it was my own business, maybe the business would tank. And those would all be horrible things, right? But in a pastor's world, if something doesn't go well, a soul is sometimes lost. And, and that's a different kind of weight. Um, you know, when someone brings something to me as, as a non-pastor, as, a, as just a, you know, my friends is, is, is hurting or struggling, I care deeply. I'll do what I can. I'll be there when I can. But as a pastor, I also have an added responsibility. And so for this guy, um, your marriage, your friends care about your marriage, they'll help you, but he's kind of responsible for your marriage or your depression or your kid that's walking away from the faith or your doubts or your addiction or whatever. It, it all kind of piles on this guy. Um, and church is kind of a different thing. When you look across this audience for a pastor, they know pretty much, and they remember, and they feel all those struggles, all the joys, but also the struggles and the hurts, and Johnny's shaking his head. We see those things. We don't just see faces. We see stories and souls that are sometimes pretty heavy. Um, you know, in, in, in my job as a Salesforce consultant, if I don't like my job or I can just always get another job, there's people recruiting me all the time to come work for them. Um, and you can get another church, but it's just different because a church, this is like your family. It's be like giving up your kids and getting more kids, it does, it, it, you know, it, it, which maybe you'd like that. I don't know. Uh, Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, the other thing is that can be very heavy is that um, you're responsible for us, but there's very little control over us. So John could tell me, hey, you need to stop doing that or start doing this, and I can say, too bad. But he's got to answer to God for me. Um, I started to think, what's the good analogy? And the only analogy I came up with is it would be like being a parent to an adult child, and some of you guys know what that is like, that you didn't raise, but still your child. Hmm. And you care for this kid so deeply, and you ache for their decisions, but the only control you have is to give some advice, knowing that they can take it or leave it. And that's kind of what it's like. Not that a pastor thinks about you like a child. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. But there's that same deep, caring investment. But literally, I can't change, as a pastor, I can't change you. Only God can do that. Mm. But I'm responsible for you. And, you know, all that to say, another thing I would throw at this, and I forgot this in the first service, is there's also kind of a, a big red target on your chest as a pastor. Because um, Satan would, no, like, no, would like nothing else to bring the pastors down. And then probably the final thing is that it's, odd, it's an odd role because in no other role as a Salesforce consultant, my spirituality is integrated, but it's not like so closely tied. But as a pastor, my spiritual life is very closely tied to my role as a pastor and ought to be. I ought to minister out of an overflow. But when those two things become confused or flipped over, that my 
relationship with Christ is my ministry, things get very toxic very, very quickly. And they're so closely tied, but they're not the same. But it's, it's really confusing to be a professional Christian, I want to tell you that. It just is. Um, now, all I have to say, and John would say this, every pastor I know loves his job. I loved being a pastor. Um, so all this weight, don't take it like, oh, the poor pastors, they're suffering. It, it's hard, and it's heavy. But every guy I know does it because there's some bad eggs out there, but every guy I know loves his people, loves his God, loves the church, and loves his job most days. Um, but it is heavy. Um, and I would say this is that, um, I don't know, I'm not sure I can speak for John, but most guys I know, because they love their God, because they love their people so deeply, I think most days they feel like they're not quite doing enough. Um, they know that only God can change people, but they maybe at the end of the day feel like I'm not, I don't have enough time, I'm not smart enough, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not you know, enough for what my people need, and they care so deeply. And that can become toxic, and I think you know, that's, that's kind of my story, is that I didn't deal with that very well, and so I felt a lot of times like I was failing my people and failing my God. When you leave church, you're like, you know, I gave everything I had, and there's still people making these choices, or I can't fix that marriage, or that kid's still far from God, or that person still hasn't come to Christ. Um, if that's not dealt with well, it can become kind of toxic. And so I wanted to say to you guys that when, when we got to that place, when I got to that place where I was like, I got that backwards, and, and you know, I loved my people, they loved me, it was no scandal, it's just that I got to a place where I just didn't felt like I wasn't enough to move people where they need to go. Um, thankfully, I had some people like John that said, you need to step out and heal up. Um, and so there is some danger to that. That weight can kind of can become hurtful, and, and, and so. But I want to tell you that we came back here because that's the kind of place this place is, and this is the kind of guy that John is, and Johnny and Tim, that uh, that we can heal up. So, yeah. Do you guys thank Mike for sharing his story with us this morning? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So don't forget what he said when you walk out. Uh, I think what he said, Tim and Johnny and I would absolutely echo 100%. You know, our hearts are here. We love what we do. We love you. And yet there's a, a weightiness to it that, um, that we just kind of live with. And so for you guys figuring out what this honor piece is, it's really hard for me to say to you, this is what you have to do to honor us. That's really a hard thing for me to say. But that's what God says. And he says, pay attention to this. Your leaders whatever area they are, whether you're pastors or ministry leaders, a lot of you serve under many different ministry leaders. When they serve you well, when they pour their heart, when they do their work and their effort, honor them. And, um, and so as you walk out, you know, I just want to ask you, challenge you to ask this question. Who in your life, in the life of our church, deserves some honor? Who deserves honor? And how will you honor them this week. I just want to challenge you to ask that question and then act on it, whatever that looks like. If it's someone in need, maybe it might not be a widow, maybe it's someone that you know, you know, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's someone in need. And God says, I just want you to bless that person. I just want you to add value and honor to them. Maybe it's someone in leadership here in our church. And God says, I just want you to add value to them, whatever that looks like. And we'll trust that you will follow God's prompting and walk in those ways.
You know, as we close this morning, um, I thought about this. I thought, what would it be like to have a church where husbands honored wives and wives honored husbands, where kids honored parents, where moms were valued and honored, and where those in need like widows and those that led like elders were honored. I think when people were around that, they would say, as you heard Mike say, and you heard Gina say, that's a place I want to be a part of. And so that's the opportunity that God has in front of us as we seek to pay attention to what this looks like for us as a church. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? God, as we just wrap up with these thoughts this morning, this whole idea of honor, um, boy, Lord, for some of us, it's really a tricky tightrope. Um, we realize that that's not been a part of our story, our journey. We've not been honored in some ways that God has designed us to experience that, whether from our parents in childhood or even as young adults or maybe professionally in our careers. We've just been overlooked. And so this is a really painful topic. Um, Lord, for others, they've experienced this, as you heard Gina and Mike share about that, Lord, and they've experienced people valuing them and creating safety and, and walking with them and caring for them. And so, Lord, it's a, something that they find themselves filled with just a lot of joy and positive memories. But Lord, you call us to, to live out of this sense of honor knowing that you have honored us um, by giving up your one and your only Son on our behalf. And if we choose to follow you with our lives, that you choose us, you redeem us, you adopt us, and you say, I love you so much and you matter to me so much, I'm going to give up everything for you. And so God, regardless of what our past has been, regardless of the story we have walked through, may we at this moment in time just come to this place of saying, God, I, I just want to remember and sit in the reality that you love me enough to give up everything for me. And that makes me feel deeply, deeply honored.